This episode is sponsored by QuantStamp. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. I think it's a truism that mainstream media coverage of the crypto industry tends to disproportionately focus on the hacks, price plunges, financial losses, and various other uglier aspects of the industry's development rather than on those more positive elements, such as the dramatic innovation taking place or the rapid global adoption. Look, I'm a journalist. I know how it is. What bleeds, leads. But this does tend to unfairly make crypto technology synonymous with scams in many people's minds. This, in turn, energizes politicians and regulators to play to that perception. Then, every now and then, we get a reminder that there are also deep problems with abuses of power inside the traditional established financial system. That tends to energize the crypto community into reminding people of the core reason why these decentralized financial solutions are being built at all, so that people and entities can transact with each other without having to trust the inherently corruptible centralized institutions that dominate that legacy system. In the opening weeks of fall, two bombshell stories have emerged that bring that wider issue with the traditional system into stark relief. The first comes from some revelations about members of the Federal Reserve's Monetary Policy Setting Committee who've engaged in extensive stock trading. The presidents of the Dallas and Boston Feds have both resigned after news of such activity emerged, and Fed Vice Chair Richard Clarida is now in hot water following a disclosure he traded funds one day before the Fed signaled a potential rate cut. The issue has caught the attention of lawmakers, including Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, who is opposing the renomination of Fed Chair Jerome Powell for a second term. Senator Warren is asserting that these developments prove that Powell has, in her words, failed as a leader. The second story is the release of a massive trove of documents showing the elaborate techniques that powerful people worldwide have used to evade taxes, to avoid scrutiny of their activity, bypass laws and launder money and assets. Called the Pandora Papers, it is the work of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. According to that group, this release, which is many magnitudes larger than the Panama Papers that it also uncovered back in 2016, deals with, and I quote, the financial secrets of 35 current and former world leaders, more than 330 politicians and public officials in 91 countries and territories, and a global lineup of fugitives, con artists, and murderers. Are these revelations making crypto look better by comparison? It's not clear. Crypto markets are up these past few days, but as always, there's a host of other factors at play. Regardless, the news brings home the core issue that has boosted demand for Bitcoin and other tokens, that confidence in the existing financial system, and in particular, in its designated stewards, is waning. One way or another, it drives the conversation around the need and the opportunities for an alternative approach. Today, we're joined by guests who will help us dive into these developments from two quite different perspectives. The first is Wall Street Journal reporter Michael Derby, 
who has been covering the Fed ever since I first started working with him in the late 90s, Dow Jones Newswires. Michael has broken some of the recent stories about stock trading that has rocked that institution. The second is Maya Jahavi, an investor and entrepreneur who has been involved in the crypto industry for many years and whose commentary on regulation, security, and other matters, mostly via her active Twitter account, belongs firmly in the must-read category. But before we get to Michael and Maya, let's bring in my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hello, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So I don't know, where were you when <laughs> you first saw this big drop of the Pandora Papers? Because uh, it was just one of those, like, every now and then there's a story and you open up like, oh, my God. It's, yeah. it, I mean, there's it's the question the of where culture. I was and the question of what I did immediately after, you know, I was like, is it right. for a drink? You know, <laughs> that's <laughs> kind of question. It's interesting, you know, because one thing that your monologue really illuminated is we're talking about, there's, there's two slightly different things that are happening here. One is about blatant information asymmetry, right? It's about some people had information, they took actions with that, that lined their pockets or they profited from other people not have access to that information. And there's an inherent unfairness to that. And it's something that I actually think that crypto you know, really does try to address. And the other is about people took advantage. And I think we should just acknowledge, although I question how relevant this is, you know, legal action in most cases, I believe, or I understand that these were not unlawful transactions, you know, that were engaged in. Nevertheless, they demonstrate that there are people in the world that have access to certain kinds of vehicles or opportunities or what have you that aren't necessarily about information asymmetry. They're just about who gets access to these kinds of systems? And you need to be in a certain echelon, let's say, or have a certain amount of wealth or you know, whatever, in some cases, both, to be able to even access these kinds of opportunities. That is less about, again, information asymmetry. It's more about exploitation of opportunities that are reserved to the few. But both of those, I think, it's interesting to kind of juxtapose those with the crypto ethos, if you will, and the idea that the democratization of access to financial services is something that really could raise standards of living, uh, for a broader number of people, which is something we talk about a lot on the show. Uh, again, I'll, I'll just say, what a week. <laughs> what a week it's been, <laughs> like we say every week, maybe even more. Every so. week, we get yeah. something big to go every with. Week. It's great. Every Thank week. you, Will. <laughs> here we are. Here we are. <laughs> Absolutely. Here we are back again. Yeah, no, it is big. And I think that that issue around illegality versus asymmetric access, and I think also intent, right? And then whether or not privacy, secrecy is something we want to promote, right? And maybe it is, but it's, it clearly is that asymmetric access issue, which I think to many people is just going to seem just so fundamentally unfair. Why don't we call our guests in? And Maya, great to, to have you with us. I want to go to you first, Mike. And that's really just give us the latest, if you don't mind, on the Fed part of the story, which is, and I think, you know, really playing out now into the hearings around Jerome Powell's future. So where do things stand and what's the mood almost within the Fed? I'll start off first off with in, in Fed world, this is a fairly fast moving story, and it's also a completely unresolved one at this point in time. A few weeks back around the, I guess around the start of the month, um, I was able to dig up some documents from the, some of the regional Fed banks because they have to do these financial disclosures every year that uh, report, you know, they're, they're fairly standard forms. And most of the time, they're completely boring. They're just, here's my retirement accounts. Uh, you know, uh, a few years ago, we had a pretty colorful guy down in Dallas who owned a lot of ranch land and gold and breeding bulls and weird stuff like that. And for a Fed reporter, you, you like to look at them just because they're just kind of fun color into the insights of, of these people who help set monetary policy. But when I pulled the documents right around Labor Day, 
The first thing that jumped out is we saw uh, the Dallas Fed Bank president who used to work for two decades at Goldman Sachs, rising to the top of their investment bank division. Um, he did have a 10-year gap between that and, and coming to the Fed. Uh, he had traded so extensively um, in stocks and other investments, some of which were actually like, in, you know, very tied to interest rate changes. He had traded so aggressively in all of these um, securities that he had literally broken the ability of the uh, disclosure forms to even convey what he'd been trading. The, the way the information is, again, you know, there's like 1 million and above and everything of his was 1 million and above. They're supposed to say what the trading dates are. He just said multiple and went back, pulled out, pulled all the documents. He'd been doing this since 2015. That was the first thing that really jumped out at us. Then the uh, Boston Fed president in the same story, he also traded fairly actively, although at a much, much, much more reduced scale. And he had traded real estate related investments when he'd been actually one of the chief voices going out and talking about you know, the risks of commercial real estate, all sorts of things like that. So that's where the story got started, just reporting this. Like right after my story went out, Bloomberg came out and had a really great like deep dive into some of this stuff too. So within fairly short order, both Dallas and Boston Fed presidents said that they would sell off all their stock holdings to avoid a perception of a conflict of interest, which some people might argue the horse was already out of the barn at that point. Then fairly quickly after that, Senator Warren called for reform of the Fed ethics code, because this is one of the big problems. The Fed is a very complicated institution and it's hard to explain succinctly how all the different parts of it go. They have different ethics codes for different sets of people on the Fed. But the overarching thing is you can't own bank stocks, you can't trade around FOMC, you know, around monetary policy meetings, and you are supposed to avoid even a hint of conflict in any financial activities you undertake. Uh, after uh, Senator Warren called for you know, reform of Fed ethics code, the Fed said itself was going to undergo its own review of its ethics standards because it turned out the last time the Fed ethics standards had been reviewed was back in the mid-90s. That was the last time that they had updated their codes. So the, the code was, was fairly ancient. And then things kind of capped off, at least at one stage of this, where uh, at the FOMC uh, press conference, as reporters, we rarely ever get chances to ask to speak to the Fed chair directly. And I asked him if he still had you know, confidence in the Boston and Dallas Fed presidents. And he, he said he was very, very unhappy in, you know, what had happened. And that was a striking thing for him to say. That was a, that was a strong thing for him to yeah. say. Then on the, the following Monday after the FMC meeting, within hours of each other, the Boston and Dallas Fed bank presidents resigned. I mean, there have been times where there have been multiple Fed officials leaving in a fairly short order, but nothing really like this under like a cloud of ethics or, or, or anything like that. So external people have called for, you know, uh, not just uh, an internal Fed review, but outside people, they want to know if whether or not legal investigations need to happen. Because one of the reasons why these Fed codes exist the way that they do is because Fed officials have extremely sensitive and privileged information about how the economy is functioning, how businesses are doing, so it is unknown, this interaction between the information that these, these people have and how it ties into their trading activity. I want Maya to weigh in on this, but before we bring her in, all of this, at the end of the day, it speaks to this core issue of confidence. The Fed's capacity to enact monetary policy is all about confidence. It has to be trusted that it is doing and saying what it intends, that it is acting in the interest of the whole, the community and everything else. And this whole game that we've seen for some time around 
quantitative easing and the signaling and everything else, the power of that signal is all about the belief and the trust that the words they are saying are going to mean something, right? Jerome Powell's through line through this whole thing is, is our credibility is incredibly important. The public needs to understand that when the Fed undertakes a monetary policy action, and especially since so much of what they do directly affects asset markets now, you know, with like bond buying, you know, the Fed needs you to be confident that the actions that they're taking are being done to help the economy and not, not to be personal profit opportunities for their policymakers. Maya, I'd love to get your thoughts on this, just this issue of confidence. Is there a crisis of confidence in the Fed? And is that something that even predates uh, this reveal? And what are, your, what are your thoughts on that generally? I was listening to Mike reiterating the whole developing story and how it all rolled out. And I was thinking, this is kind of an underwhelming. I think for people, especially in crypto and just in general, someone who got into the markets in 2008 or so, this is just the latest round of, hey, we can't trust our institutional because there's something intricately corrupt by a misaligned incentives and in how the system functions right now. And even all these political rumors about maybe having someone come in and replace Powell and not confirming his second term, seems like even that has a lot of the political weight and a philosophy that someone or other fractions might want to promote in lieu of the situation. And we've seen that given the COVID crisis and all the, the pumping up of assets over the last year and a half or so, that what the Fed does has a lot of weight in markets. And right now they are interlinked to so many asset classes just by their mere intervention. But that hasn't, I think, assured a lot of people of a sound policy process in how they're managing markets in general. So let's go into that a little bit. So there's the people, okay, so certainly there are named individuals who sit at the heads of these institutions, some of whom have now been implicated in what Mike was walking us through earlier. And then there's kind of the institution itself, which is meant to kind of have its own halo, if you will, around it, independent of who maybe sits in that particular role. And the idea is that what we're seeing, I think, over time is the equation of personality with institution. I think this is true across a lot of different domains. I think it's bigger than that. That's really my point. I think this is one generational and also about a political differences. This is bigger than one person, the Dallas uh, Fed chair or the Boston one. This yeah. isn't about, well, maybe it is about Elizabeth Warren and what she's trying to promote, but it's also a clash of economic political philosophies that we've seen set up in the West over the last decade or so. And you see that in Europe and you see that in the US as well, where on one hand, we see that Asia and especially in China, they kind of gave up on liberal economic or free markets and are intervening in a very centralized manner and building the infrastructure to collect more and more economic data in a very specific way, individual and what they do. Whereas both in Europe and the US, it's like, because of circumstances, you see central banks pumping a lot of money, if it was QE before and right now, and, and even before that TARP, and then try and push it back where every time there's a policy intervention, you see where political fractions and big money and a lot of interest groups come in and kind of manage to thwart the policy for their own profits. And if it's just one person, it would be one thing, but it's not. It's an entire political system that I, I feel like is sometimes failing us, both as a society and as individuals who just participate in the markets. That reference, of course, that political system is where the Pandora Papers kind of gives us this broad you know, universal look at this deeper institutional problem. 
QuantStamp is looking for talented people to join our team and help us secure the blockchain industry. Our clients include major blockchain projects like Ethereum 2.0, DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, and Aave, and global enterprises like Toyota. As a fully remote team, working for QuantStamp means a great work-life balance, an environment that values creativity and effectiveness, and compensation packages on par with big tech. Come work for the leading blockchain security company. Learn more at quantstamp.com slash careers. I just want to go to you again, Mike, and just sort of talk about the dollar. This show really is all about exploring what a sort of almost like a future Bretton Woods world would look like, given the emergence of alternative like CBDCs, but also stablecoins and crypto as this sort of a changing ecosystem emerges. And of course, we still very much live in the dollar world, but it is founded upon trust. And I'm just wondering, you know, from your reporting and what you're hearing from people, are people getting worried at all that, you know, you've, you've certainly seen academics weigh in about whether or not trust in the US and their trust in the dollar itself is in shaky ground these days. Are people worried that this particular set of scandals is in any way putting that at risk? Well, my, my sense of it so far is that the way this, I'm calling it a controversy, I'm trying to use the most neutral term I can use for it. What this seems to have done so far is kind of given red meat to if you were a person coming into this that already was skeptical of the Fed, skeptical of Fed policies, already saw you know nefarious intent in Fed actions, this is like red meat to those people. And there's a, a lot of those people. There always have been, you know, the way Fed policies have played out you know, since the financial crisis. You know, skeptics of the Fed, this this gives them ammunition to to come at the Fed. I don't know overall, again, since this is still playing out and there's still things to happen here, you know, I don't know where this will end up. We can at least say you know, things in Fedland often take a long time to happen. And my initial story dropped on September 7th, and we've already had you know, two resignations. You know, all, all this stuff happened. Things have, things have happened quickly. So you know, there's things that can happen fairly soon. I, I don't know. But I don't know if there's been a broad undermining of the Fed. You know, I still see People uh, talk about, obviously, there's still a whole massive conversation going on about just normal monetary policy stuff, tapering, bond buying, all that kind of stuff. That conversation seems to be going on just as it always did. So, Mike, I mean, you said you're a little underwhelmed by how significant this is because it's sort of like just part of the course of something that, that people have already understood to be a failure broadly. So looking at this within that wider context, you know, do you feel as if there is a tipping point somewhere where the system ultimately just collapses under this loss of confidence? I hope not. I think that we're getting a drip by drip, basically piece of the system kind of signaling where it's failing, right? Even the Pandora papers, as Sheila said, it's not something illegal. It actually goes to show us how the policy that legislators and politicians have promoted has been designed to bring in money to more esoteric business centers across the world and in the US, right? Say North Dakota or Delaware. And that policy was almost like a a tit for tat where, hey, you're going to pay less taxes and we will basically offer you privacy in terms of your businesses. And on the other side of that, you see people trying to construct more, I want to say more progressive, but it could also be more libertarian policy as an alternative to what the existing reality that we live through. I'm very skeptical of that happen. I think instead what we're seeing is a very moderate, evolution of where crypto as an alternative and fintech on a parallel track 
are trying to bring in new users and new traders. And sometimes they're just emulating the same practices only in a more sexy UX. Let's use that a little to seg over to the papers and major reveal of these papers. So what struck me with this, because there, of course, have been revelations of this kind of activity over the the years. You know, it's not the first time we've seen like this. It's just sheer uh, global scale, if you will, of it, right? And just how it really transcends sector. You've got my favorite, you know, Shakira is on there, right? So it's it's current heads of state, it's former heads of state, it's celebrities, it's sports uh, people, it's ever, it's just, it's just all over the place, you know, and Elton John, I think was on there, Zarakash, but I checked that to make sure. Yes, Elton John's on there. You know, just, just um, the sheer magnitude of, of the number of people engaging in these kinds of activities, I think, A, goes to your point, Maya, that, you know, they're getting advice on this from somewhere. I find it a little hard to believe that Elton John is composing songs in the daytime and at nighttime researching offshore tax havens, you know, someone's giving guidance and advice around this in a pretty systematic way to enable these kinds of flows of funds and these kinds of havens to exist. And so there's a lot to be said for, to your point, the policies that are in place that make this, for some, probably just ordinary behavior, just an ordinary way of taking assets or taking earnings and putting them in in a place that for the rest of us is just absolutely mind-blowing and mind-boggling when you think about what that diverts. Now, the point of all of this, of course, is that you know, where was this money initially intended to go? Well, it's the consequence of that. So in the, the consequence of kind of having something like a tax shelter or a tax haven means you're not paying taxes in your country of residence or maybe in multiple countries where you might owe taxes, which of course the flow through there is those then go, you then have budget issues at the national level or even at the state level. You have the inability to provide basic services to people. And in my mind, this rabid fervor around this a is due to the global scale and the kinds of people, some of whom are household names, but also that this is sort of coming out in the middle of this pandemic that we're all in, when governments have been having to spend inordinate amounts of money on trying to keep people alive, keep people healthy. And all of this money that's been diverted, I would think that people are drawing a direct line, at least those I'm speaking to in my personal and professional life, to just the sheer tragedy that honestly that represents. So um, I won't ask you to comment on kind of my, my social commentary there, but, but in general, you know, let's talk about this a bit. So just in terms of the sheer scope and scale of this particular data dump versus others in the past, like, is that right? I mean, is this just, have we seen like this before? Is this kind of like the grossest of the gross reveals that we've kind of had of this nature? I'm not so sure. I mean, remember the Panama Papers a few years back? And what was really surprising for me is actually how all the actions that people took following the Panama Papers and the FATCA uh, regulation that came into place. Basically, what I learned from this is how fast tax havens and the mega wealthy kind of reorganizes their finances to, t- to take advantage of the new places for tax shelters, right? And the second revelation, I think, again, it wasn't the sheer magnitude either of the documents or the people. And even the stories in themselves, of like from corruption, I mean, they were all awful in like, you know, in a very holistic collective manner, like, and I'm with you on the social issues, but there's no one story individual that I I found very shocking. In fact, I think a lot of this is very boring, investigative, forensic accounting of how many corrupt stories we probably aren't aware of in terms of local politics, like in, in the Czech Republic, in Austria, in, I think there was another in Russia and so forth. My shock from that actually was the amount of tax havens or the amount of capital as a percentage in the US and the UK. Like I wasn't expecting that. And keep in mind, this is also happening 
while there is a lot of global or an attempt to do global coordination for a global minimal tax, both for corporations and the mega wealthy. So I thought that was a very interesting coincidence of when it came out. So Maya, like, what does this mean for crypto? Is this an opportunity? Is this going to in any way enhance the capacity of the story? Because in some respects, of course, at least, you know, as you heard from my monologue, you know, there's this sort of mainstream framing of things. It could just as well be that people say, oh, look, are we going to bring in a technology that's just going to enable even more secrecy and movement of funds, which is the sort of prevailing narrative around this? When in fact, we could have the conversation about like, you know, the actual structure of the system and the dependence on these institutions and all that is really the problem. You know, and if that's the right tack here, how do we actually seize that narrative and, and run with it? So let me try and address what you're asking. I think this is directly related to crypto, but probably on three different verticals. One would be regulatory. Two would be um, Fed accounts or CBDC, central bank digital currencies. And third would just be the privacy issues, right? So uh, on the first level, you see that the enthusiasm that the Biden administration has, specifically Gensler and Elizabeth Warren, to come in and regulate and I'd say even villainate the crypto industry is not in the order of magnitude to the real uh, criminality, the legal criminality, if, if you will, of what happens within the existing tax system. And again, you see that this is a very direct trade-off. Hey, we're going to lower your taxes and we'll offer you privacy. It's interesting that this conversation is happening right at the same time where the Biden administration has nominated their OCC nominee is Professor from Cornell, who actually advocates for having consumer deposits at the Fed, where basically every individual, whether or not they choose or opt in, they will have the Fed lure into the very intricacies of their financial life and with absolutely no levers as to where that privacy can be limited, right? And this is directly linked, I think, to the CBDC attempt, which not coincidentally, if I believe, was the focus of the Boston Fed, where the U.S. has been very late to the game and they're expected to have a big paper coming out in the next couple of weeks. But if you were to look at what, say, Canada or the IMF has been working on, you see that the questions of where a liberal democracy can lure into people's life and where commercial deposits or commercial lending fits into a financial market system is going to become a a bigger topic of of the conversation around those designs. And again, that's also part of, do we need a public option for banking? And does anyone have the right to that access? And should that be, again, that same trade-off? And meaning we can look into every aspect of your life in return for us giving you access to banking. And suddenly that sounds like a very Facebook promotional offer and not something you'd expect from the federal government. I, yeah, I think the CBDC, especially with the Fed, is very interesting because Powell, Fed Chair Powell, has actually spoken multiple times about privacy being a, an important consideration in the whole thing and talking about how I mean, he's mentioned China. He's like China's total surveillance state. It's expected that they can use their whatever they're creating over there and they can have complete visibility into everything. Americans, in theory, won't stand for that. And so that's why I guess in part this Fed paper is so fascinating because I, I want to see how they'll sort out the, you know, the, the privacy question, because there's a, a lot of really, really cool things the Fed could do with a CBDC if it adopted it. The privacy question is incredibly important, and I don't exactly know how they resolve that one, but you're right. I mean, that is something that they would have to address in order to make it happen. But ultimately, Maya, like, is there any way in which a centrally managed digital currency 
can avoid this. Like, and, and in some respects, it may come down to the same trust issue we've been talking about from the start here, because they may well have constitutional guarantees in place and a bunch of other firewalls and things. But at the end of the day, there's a backdoor that the federal government has in its hand. If you trust the government to sort of maintain its commitment to privacy, that's one thing. But if you don't, then it has all these other issues. So, yeah, I mean, how can the United States stand up a private CBDC? My belief long term is that the U.S. won't have a CBDC and instead you're going to see private monies, as Gensler called it, or basically stable coins by uh, licensed bank entities in the U.S. But in general, I've been looking into that question specifically with zero knowledge proof and privacy tech for a long time. And I think that is conflating the question a lot of times, whether or not how does privacy exist with the CBDC or with central bank deposit money, right? You can have the money deposited at the Fed while you're not necessarily using public infrastructure or something that the government came up with. And by doing so, you're still able to kind of decentralize access both to the tech and to that back door and have a gateway to that access as people can opt in. Think Obamacare, but on a multitude of of options for people. And maybe that's a function of what we're going to see retail banks in the near future. But that again goes back to the, the internal CBDC question. Do you want it to be a retail solution or a wholesale solution. And I think in that sense, neither the Fed nor uh, any of the U.S. regulators have really expressed a strong opinion in that matter. Well, I think it really comes down to what's the problem that they're trying to solve. Like, what's the goal of this? You know, and so if you posit that the raison d'etre of a central bank is to basically have very tight control over monetary policy, you know, then that's one thing. If you posit that the role of the central bank or the primary motivator ought to be to get people into the banking system and provide you know, standards of living and, and increase standards of living and all that kind of thing, that those are related, but they're slightly different. You know? And so I think that there's an interesting question, and this is where I've always kind of been a little bit like, uh, opaque about it, is like, what exactly is the goal? And I don't know that I personally have ever really heard articulated a very clear uh, set of objectives around the issuance of this, apart from the kind of like, no, no, not China, China surveillance you know, kind of thing. But you know, Mike, I'm curious, and all your research on, on the Fed and CBDC, if you have heard a series of, I've heard a series of articulated goals, but if you're aware, if there's maybe some more targeted or specific objectives there. So first off, from their world, you know, I mean, the dollar financial system is big. You don't want to wreck it. You have a reserve currency. You need to be very cautious about anything you do that would damage it. In, indisputable. I mean, the dollar is the world's reserve currency. Even in crypto world, people actually recognize that. <laughs> the Fed goals actually seem fairly modest. Real-time, real-time movement of cash at low cost, you know, so that you don't have to sit there and wait three days for Venmo to move your money from one place to another, like this ACH thing, you know, where checks take days to clear. They want to address that. They're already working on that. You mentioned wholesale. Are, Fed now is working on that for banks. And I think that's been moved up to 2022 or 2023. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. But at the wholesale level for banks, that real-time settlement that is coming. It seems like really their most focused goal is cheaply moving money in real time. That's what it is. That seems to be, if they do anything so far, based on the comments and the research that's come out so far, uh, it's a fairly modest thing. And the way some folks at the Boston Fed described it to me, a lot of people wouldn't even really have a great perception that they were even using like this, like CBC. It would like, the way this guy at the Boston Fed described me is like, you know, you look at your bank account, you've got like a series of panels, like there's your checking, there's your savings. And then maybe there's another one with your CBDC and you can instantly move money back and forth between all of them. 
and it's fairly transparent to you. And you're not thinking like, oh, here's my paper dollars. Here's my electronic dollars in my bank account. And here's my CBDCs. It, it all is a fairly close match to what we have now, just with those faster and cheaper aspects to it. And then there's some really interesting academic work about monetary policy stuff you can do, but I, I don't detect any interest in the Fed so far about how they could actually use these accounts to, uh, to do monetary policy. Can I just revert this back right now to the initial start of this conversation? We were talking about how the new Fed news basically is another, another indicator of the lack of trust in institutions, because I'm listening to Mike right now and I'm thinking, okay, this is not what we meant when we started chilling CBDC and central bank money and we need access for everyone to kind of integrate digital programmable money into systems. And I think it's really interesting where the crypto world is more about, hey, listen, guys, institutions have failed to innovate for so long in terms of technological uh, thinking of money, monetary policy, payments financial instruments, and all these sandboxes and innovation theater labs and banks haven't really resulted in much. If you need like a bunch of stable coins and DeFi experts to FOMO the Fed into a new payment system. Whereas now you're looking at how corporate America is really thinking of DeFi and NFTs and crypto, and it's a lot more integrative and I'll even say interoperable. And kind of thinking of money and finance as something that can be programmable and kind of imported and exported and interlinked into identity. So as I'm putting up my, my crypto hat, I'm listening to Mike's reporting and I'm thinking this is, once again, it's just reinforcing all the mistrust that we have in the existing institutions and the gatekeepers. Yeah, like if you're just an an everyday person and you're just using your bank account and you know you got your paycheck and you need to move money. I mean, aren't those valuable things? Again, if you can get things moved around faster. When I hear your outline of, of objectives, it just sounds, compared to what we know in this space is going on, you know, Maya's referred to DeFi and the NFTs and even what China's doing on a, on a national level, integrating its central bank digital currency into the blockchain services network in this massive new way of thinking about how supply chains work. The Fed sounds so far behind the eight ball. It just sounds instant payments it is so boring. It's like, oh my God, there is a competitive threat coming right here. Yeah, I was going to say really quickly, and I also think it's important to note that the Boston Fed is my perception ahead of a lot of the other branches of the Fed in terms of what it's thinking about. So it remains unclear to me if there's a consistent view across all the different branches of the Fed about the objective, just kind of the point I was trying to make earlier. But uh, no, Maya, I'd love to hear your response to what, what Mike just said. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Michael says supply chains. And I think that if you were right now to approach anyone in the Fed and tell them, if I were now to offer you a system where you know exactly where every container ship is, how much their invoice financing is, how much credit line they have at the banks, how it's all interlinked, and you can actually quantify the amount of risk to the supply chains of very specific order books, if it's chips, if it's gas, if it's natural gas, whatever it is. They would look at us like we're talking about a sci-fi financial world. And yet we know coming in for crypto that, that such a possibility or such a system is a very tangible possibility for a world we can all live in. And I, I find it really interesting that it's not how conservative they are. I actually appreciate that aspect, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's how they're not really connecting to what is going on, what can happen, and what kind of regulations and federal systems, we need to make that happen as like entrepreneurs. 
Yeah. So Mike, maybe you can just walk some of our listeners who aren't as familiar with how the Fed you know, operates and the fact that there are different branches. So Boston is driving this project. And does that mean that everyone has to follow it? Does it, what, what does that mean? Like, maybe you can just talk through generally how that works. Yeah. So my understanding of it is what Boston has been working on is, is like a technical aspects of the process. We don't know a lot of the details about it, but the, uh, the Federal Reserve Board is supposed to release some sort of paper also that might have parts of that in there. I'm not, not exactly sure. So it is a project, but I mean, the Fed has so many other things going on right now, the pandemic and everything, the economic response to the pandemic, that is their focus. It, it is definitely of interest and, and they get a lot more questions about it than they used to. It's a slow moving project. And, and also because you talk about structures of the Fed, I mean, so the Fed, another thing that people don't really appreciate a lot about the Fed is the Fed provides a lot of just like very boring services for financial institutions, like moving large sums of money around like Fedwire. And these are services they charge banks for. You know, Powell's made the point a number of times, like whatever the Fed ends up doing, Congress has almost certainly got to buy into it legally, which also adds another further complication to everything. So it's hard for them to really dream big about these things. Much easier for China in that regard. I'll just land a point I've landed before, which is, you know, all of this is by way of saying that the ROI on this, like the, the, it just, it has to make sense, right? And the reason I think that the U.S. hasn't necessarily, wasn't at the front cutting edge of innovation in this space is because A, the pain points are not felt by a huge swath of the population as the reserve currency of the world. A lot of systems here, they, they work okay. Like they're not perfect. They're obviously, as we get back to our earlier part of the conversation, there's scope for abuse. And we've certainly seen that recently. Um, but, you know, they work generally, they're functional. They're functional enough at least to to maybe prioritize other issues that need to be, I would say, maybe need to be prioritized. Whereas in other parts of the world, we've seen that uh, this is even more broken, like the central banking systems or whatever it might be, are just really, really, really broken and not servicing really anybody. So that's not to say that I don't think that the U.S. is missing an opportunity here. It's just to say that I don't personally find it that surprising that we are where we are in this country, whereas others are far more advanced in their thinking. That seems to me kind of logical given what is perceived anyway as being the true uh, pain point and the true value of this kind of innovation, which again, I think it's on the industry in part to help shape that perception and change it because I don't necessarily think it's accurate. Nevertheless, I think there's, you got to start with a problem you're trying to solve. Can I just push back on that? Yeah, go ahead. I think that's not necessarily true. I think while I agree with you that there aren't that many pain points, I think you the most advanced central banks in terms of how they're researching and actually building and experimenting with CBDC, blockchain technology for real-time settlements or for financing and, and so forth are uh, the Monetary Authority of Singapore and probably Canada. Those are two countries that um, I'm sure you know just well as I've experienced that they are pretty advanced, right? Yep. They're not exactly third world countries in terms of their banking infrastructure. And I think you you can also look at the FCA as another central bank that not only, and the Bank of England, that not only have experimented with uh, CBDC and different blockchain networks and how they can fit with that. I think Mark Carney has explained in multiple times how they've actually kind of evolved their thinking about what exactly they're trying to build. And I remember him telling us like back in 2017, when we're talking about privacy. He's like, I don't care about privacy. I care about resilience. Then it became, oh yeah, privacy. So they've really like made that, like walk that path in order to educate themselves and understand what they need to address and if it fits what their um, targets are. And again, the ROI here is awful. Um, and I think there's also a nudge in CBDC in terms of central banks and regulators where 
maybe the actual ROI isn't in CBDC or blockchains, but it's in understanding where the pain points are. And we can see that in the US where suddenly, I remember the fights from T plus three to T plus two, and suddenly even Gensler has kind of succumbed to, yeah, maybe we do need same day settlement systems, right? And if you look at the ACH and compare that to faster payments in the UK, it's pretty behind. It's not on par in, in terms of technological compatibility with fintech and banks. And again, that's not something that the average Joe feels. But when you're building into these systems and when you're using them, you definitely feel how behind the U.S. banking infrastructure is. So I'm going to agree with all of that, but I'm going to just land the other point that I forget who it was that made first, which is the U.S. dollar as the world's global reserve currency. There's a different pressure on the Fed than there is on any of the other phenomenal institutions that are very advanced that you name. It isn't the same thing. And I do want to point that out because I, I would argue that we didn't want the U.S. to go first. That wasn't actually the right thing. And yes, I think we wanted the U.S. to move earlier than it did. But I would say that the technology has matured so much since some of those early experiments happened. It's in a very different place. The understanding of it, the perception of it is in a very different place than it was back when you had some of the early MAS experiments, for example, or even, you know, something like a Lion Rocker and Inathon or things like that. The MCBDCs, the multi-CBDCs, right, kind of experiments that are really, really powerful. So yes, I am certainly not questioning that it's go time. It's been go time, right? But I also just want to note that there is a difference between, uh, it's not just the sophistication of the system and even the perception of the pain point. There's also, I mean, I hate to be all exceptionalist about this, but there is this responsibility, I do think, that, you know, that I think the Fed is weighing. And I think they take that, at least I like to think, quite seriously. It's just a fact of being. Yeah the way the world is, right? What their reality also gives them if they can sort of think a little differently, a little bit outside the box is an advantage, right? And this is why I think what Randall Qualens had to say was so, in many respects, very interesting for differentiating that view, this kind of private money view, the idea that maybe the thing shouldn't be built in-house with a CBDC inside the Fed. And, and instead, to your point, Maya, earlier, it's a private money model, and we should actually embrace the idea of stable coins to be built on top of this precisely because the dollar is the reserves currency. And you've got this immediate pickup, right? You've got people around the world who go, oh, great, I can easy access this, this stable coin. And all of a sudden, the dollar's dominance actually goes even bigger because people are using it for everything rather than their local currencies. And, and so there's this interesting sort of dichotomy there. Mike, I don't know, that debate, how, how deep is it? I don't know if you followed what Quellas was saying there. Is there any scope that people are talking about a much more private run model and the Fed just lets all these stable coins do their thing? Because of course, we're looking at regulation coming down the pike, particularly on that matter. Or is the thinking generally, no, no, we must own this thing and it has to be, you know, it has to be controlled by the Fed itself. Um, I think there's more probably, if there is a through line to this, is, is more just a general regulatory stance of just worrying right now about, you know, the, the stability risks and the risks that come from stable coins. There's been a lot of talk about that and the need to get them regulated because they function like money market funds or, or like bank accounts. And they currently create financial stability risks in the way that they exist now and that they need to be regulated. So I guess I'd sum that up as like some skepticism of a world where there's lots of private securities, lots of private uh, monies, a general view that these aren't even money at all. They're just investments. They're just you know, investment vehicles that people are playing around with right now. Um, they're not actually money at all. And um, the risks, the regulatory issues with, you know, dealing with stable coins and things like that. But I don't think they're thinking of a world of operating in a world where 
you say inside the United States borders, there's multiple private monies all competing with each other. I think they even talk about there's going to be a shakeout at some point of, of some of this stuff. So that seems to be where it's at. My, you seem to think this is where it's going to go. What do you see briefly? Because we need to wrap in a moment here. What's your framework and vision for how it actually plays out? I think I agree with Mike in terms of like the concept of looking at stable coins with private money is probably going to dissipate within the next quarter or two. We're going to see regulated banking institutions essentially offer stable coins, and then it's more like commercial money or M2, right? So that makes no difference. Like you can trade a dollar you withdrew from JP Morgan with something you took out of Wells Fargo and no one cares or sees the difference. So I think that's where we're going. The real question is how that's going to trickle down into the crypto markets and in terms of both the market structures that we have in place and also perhaps how institutions are going to look into crypto markets and DeFi products and protocols. And I think that's going to be very closely linked to what the Fed and the SEC or how they're going to approach stable coins. Well, I think it's kind of interesting that we started a conversation talking about, you know, potentially loss of confidence in these institutions and the challenges that come with these abuses and, and everything else. And we ended up a place, you know, basically conceding that ultimately, you know, it's all going to come down to the regulators taking charge and defining what this is going to be, which I, I don't know what that says about where things are in the world or whether or not like, you know, this is actually suggesting the US is going to be hindered in the long run against more competitive models or not. It is just the reality, right? And I think that's what's kind of interesting about this conversation. But just want to thank you both for helping us meander our way through that. Really interesting stuff. Great sort of deep knowledge and insight. So Maya Jahavi, Michael Derby, thank you so much for being with us. And of course, Sheila Warren, as always, thanks for joining me. Uh, that's all for now, folks. Come back next week for another edition of Money Reimagined. Bye for now. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, Michael Derby, and Maya Jahave. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau, with announcements by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.